Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host Simon Wams here, one of my writers in this case, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. He's written me a script, A Summer of Fear in Phoenix, The Baseline Killer and Serial Shooter. Before the show, if you're brand new to The Casual Criminalist, first of all, welcome. Uh, I've never read this before. Matt has written it for me, and uh, you and me, dear audience, are going to explore it together. I mean, unless you've heard of this already, in which case you know more about him than the guy who's actually hosting this podcast. Just jump in, shall we? In the last script of The Casual Criminalist that I submitted, I talked about the serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells, whose man he murdered as many as 74 people across 17 different states, left little evidence behind and no identifiable patterns, no preferred method of killing, and no desire to brag about his crimes until after he was caught. Yeah, it was brutal. This was an episode where Matt starts to be like, yeah, this guy could be as bad as Pedro Lopez. And I'm like, uh. I don't think so. And then it was like, oh my God, why, why? It's like, he'd just kill anyone. He was a psycho like crazy <laughs> behind the scenes story uh it's <laughs> so dark jen was like simon i need a little break from casual criminalist and i was like oh my god i don't blame you at all jen does the editing for this show like the, the visual editing afterwards and i'm like okay and so there was a guy who uh had recently been in touch with me and i was like you want to have a crack at this and he's like yeah absolutely mate i'd love to and i'm like okay and he goes do you have to start me on the bloody end this episode dude <laughs> It was so intense. It was so intense. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Next time I'll give you something easier. If you haven't seen that episode, this caused a major problem as many police departments and the FBI weren't even aware that he existed until after he was caught, which time he gave a full detailed confession of his crimes. But by then, he'd been killing for over 20 years. There was no nationwide manhunt, no news specials asking for information, and no fear or public panic, aside for instances where a brutal murder dominated the headlines in a small town. Today's case, however, is vastly different. These murders didn't take place across the United States. They took place only in one city, many within a short distance of a single road. And while the police may have been slow to realize that they were dealing with a serial killer, once they were aware, so too was the public. A killer was targeting citizens at random, and soon television screens within the city were filled with warnings to stay indoors and not venture out alone unless it was absolutely necessary. This meant that it didn't take long for panic to set in. In the summer of 2006, a time that's now referred to as the Summer of Fear, life in Phoenix, Arizona, grinded to a halt. The biggest thing I know about Arizona, <laughs> I, I literally couldn't point to Arizona on a map. If someone was like, here's a map of the United States, I'd be like, is it somewhere, for some reason, I'd say it's like near that Breaking Bad place, like down by the Mexican border. Where's, oh, where's it? Albuquerque, New Mexico is where Breaking Bad was. I feel like it's close to New Mexico. Am I right, Americans? Let me know in the comments. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're watching on podcasts, you can't comment which honestly is sometimes a relief because sometimes I read those YouTube comments and it's like, oh boy, <laughs> here we go. I was saying the only thing I know about Arizona is they make something called Arizona iced tea, which is this like iced tea drink that my wife loves. And it's in this giant can and it always says 99 cents on it. And I'm like, how is this less than a dollar? And here it's not. It's like, it's probably the equivalent of like three or four dollars because obviously it's imported and stuff. But my wife really likes it. So I always buy it for her. But I always feel like I'm getting a bit ripped off because it says 99 cents which is like 20 crowns and i swear i end up paying like 80 crowns for it it's it's ridiculous sorry that's not an interesting story at all let's just carry on with what you're all here for which is murder police had no suspects and the killer seemed to always be one step ahead of them however the real problem was even larger than that as you probably already gleaned from the title phoenix wasn't just being targeted by one killer it was tar being targeted by two. Oh, the baseline killer and the serial shooter it should be read like the baseline killer and the serial shooter 
Wow, I just assumed it was like some dude who was a baseline killer, whatever that is, and a serial shooter. Like, as in they're the same person, but not. Okay. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how two individuals who had never met one another worked together to bring an entire city to its knees by ending the lives of 16 people and wounding dozens of others at random. This is the story of the hunt for the baseline killer and the serial shooter. Snapshot Phoenix while the script's narrative may be guided by the actions of two murderers, the way I see it, the real protagonist of today's story is the city of Phoenix itself. So instead of setting the stage by going into a long and drawn out backstory about our killer's early lives as we normally would, I'll instead be offering you a slice of life from the Valley of the Sun. Maybe that's going to tell me where it is. Today, Phoenix, Arizona is the United States' fifth most populous city. It's 11 most populous metropolitan area and its first most populous state capital. Thank you, Wikipedia. At an elevation of approximately 1,100 feet, it's fascinating, 150 miles north of the US-Mexican border. Boom! That's close, right? 150 miles is not far in the giant country that is America. Aside from a few mountainous regions within the city and the outskirts, most of the city's streets align to form an almost perfect grid of parallel rows and squares. <laughs> this is America's so neatly organized because all these like planned cities. I live in a neighborhood where it's it should be like this. It looks like it's blocks, but then the blocks don't add up correctly and they're at weird angles. So you think you'll just be like, yeah, go down three blocks and turn left. And then you're somehow on the wrong street. I've lived in this neighborhood for five years and I still get lost because it's like, it's blocks. They're just, just off perfect. So it's just, they're just wrong. So you're always getting lost no matter how long you've lived there. It's very frustrating. But that's when, when you live in a city that's really old and they didn't plan it properly. Thanks to its location within the Sonoran Desert, summer temperatures in Phoenix regularly reach 105 degrees Fahrenheit, 40.5 degrees Celsius. Holy shit, that's hot. And its lack of trees leave few places to hide from the brutal heat. In fact, at the time of writing, Phoenix is currently experiencing its 24th day of a massive heat wave, where midday temperatures are reaching at least 110. That's 43 Celsius. Good lord, it's the 8th of August today, and it is raining and cold and it has been for the last two weeks and like i like summer summer's fine but autumn autumn is probably my favorite month spring uh, season spring is the second and i'm like loving these just like slightly dreary 20 degree days i was just like this is perfect for me because it's not blazing hot it's not cold it's just right and it's so nice <laughs> like, i do not want 40 degrees that is way too hot and it could be it could be easily 40 degrees if it was the 8th of august in any other year but it's like 20. It's probably not even 20. It's probably like 18 outside right now, and it's lovely. This criticism is not to say that Phoenix isn't a beautiful city, because it is. Its residents and the residents of other many Western US towns and cities are simply built different. I feel like this is sponsored by the city of Phoenix. It's not. But I feel like Phoenix. You could have thrown a little money my way for this. <laughs> Visit Phoenix. I've never been to Phoenix. I know nothing. Well, obviously, I didn't even know where it was. I'm going to look it up. Let's bring up maps. If it's near Albuquerque... Uh, not Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'll be really pleased with myself. Phoenix. Phoenix. Oh no, it's looked up a place called Phoenix Beauty Salon. Phoenix Asian Fusion. These are all restaurants and beauty salons near me. I want Phoenix. Nope, not in Dortmund, Germany. Come on! <laughs> Phoenix in Arizona. There we go, that's the badger. Oh my god, it is a grid, isn't it? Wow, and it's big. Come on, where are you, Phoenix? Oh, you're right near California. Oh, you are near New Mexico. I'm a genius. Yes. 
Yes. Oh, Tucson, Arizona. I've heard of that. Tucson. Brilliant. This is absolutely dull for Americans. So I'm just going to move on. But I'm just pleased with myself and my apparent genius geography. Although I have to say in my mind, it was kind of to the east uh, of New Mexico, but we'll just ignore that. I didn't even say that. So why did I admit it? To be sure the city can stand the heat, Phoenix is said to have some of the best urban hiking areas within the country. The Phoenix Mountains, which sm sit smack dab in the middle of the Phoenix metropolitan area, are a popular destination for cycling enthusiasts, equestrian riders. Jesus Christ, Matt! <laughs> You're selling Phoenix! These activities, combined with desert botanical gardens and other experiences unique to desert living, draw a tremendous number of tourists to the area and help keep small businesses afloat. Yes, life in Phoenix today has a lot to offer. But if we take a step back to the early 2000s, you'll see a much different city. By the turn of the 21st century, Phoenix have been having a few relatively good years. In 2001, the city's baseball team, the Arizona Diamondbacks, had defeated the New York Yankees to win the World Series. And although general interest in baseball had been on the decline in recent decades, their victory revitalized interest in sport across the state. This brought more tourists, which meant more money, which meant more good times. And since the 2008 financial crisis was still a whole seven years away, many residents were sitting pretty. The following year, Bank won ballpark, the Diamondbacks home stadium, welcomed its second highest home game attendance to date, with over 3 million visitors in 2002. Oh, okay, like over a season, not in one place, because that would be an insane stadium. The next year saw their third highest, with 2.9 visiting in 2003. 2.9 million, sorry. Many visitors, more money, more good times. However, not everything was sunshine and cactuses. Like any city, Phoenix also had its fair share of crime, and in the early 2000s, the frequency and severity of those crimes was on the rise. Thanks to its proximity to the US-Mexican border, drugs were flowing into the city at an alarming rate, and gang shootouts and drive-bys were becoming a relatively common occurrence. By 2005, the city had a violent crime rate of 729 per 100,000, the highest in the city's recorded history, which beat out the US's national average of 469. This is a number that would not be beaten until 2017 when it hit its all-time peak of 760. For reference, New York City's yearly violent crime rate has mostly hovered in the 400s and 500s since 2011. Whoa, and I think New York's kind of like a scary-ish place. Like, I'd imagine like, I don't know, I'd go there and I'd be a bit more concerned about being mugged than I would be like on a trip somewhere else. <laughs> if I was going to like, where is this? Phoenix? I'd be like, where is this Phoenix? There's no one that it's like, but apparently it's scary. <laughs> It's like, it's not a place that I associate with crime in my mind. I guess Detroit would be number one, because when I think of Detroit, I think of like some dystopian hellscape because that's how the media, I'm sure Detroit's actually quite nice. Is it nice? Maybe it's not nice, but the media's done a horrible, like Detroit's tourism board must have a really tough time because everyone thinks Detroit's horrible, right? Sorry, Detroit. Love you. The crime wave made investigating all crimes, even non-violent ones, more difficult as the police's budget was stretched thing and its officers were considerably overworked. The baseline killer and serial shooter took full advantage of that. Their crimes, especially the ones perpetrated by the serial shooter, often resembled those of gangs, and it took police a long time to realize they were connected to each other and separate from other drive-bys that were happening in the same area. However, the baseline murders were easier to tie together as they all took place along a single road. Baseline Road is a 43-mile, 69-kilometer arterial road that runs east to west through the Phoenix metropolitan area and connects Phoenix, Maricopa County to neighboring Pinal County. Okay, never mind. It's 43 miles long. That's insane. When I imagine, like, on a street, I was like, I just imagined some suburban street in my mind that's probably, like, 500 yards long, and it's like many people were being murdered there. But this is a big road. So I'm sorry, police, for jumping to the conclusion that all these murders were occurring on some tiny road somewhere, and you guys were like, probably not related. But this is a big road, all right? 
Sorry. It begins just north of a landfill at its eastern end, stretches west in a nearly straight, unbroken line, and runs past multiple hospitals and surgery centers, several public schools and academies, and in numerous fast food restaurants, shopping centers, salons, hotels, gas station parks, and a golf course. To its south, the South Mountain Park and Preserve houses the locally famous Dobbins Lookout. <laughs> I need to put on my tourism board post again. To the south, the South Mountain Park and Preserve houses the locally famous Dobbins Lookout. Definitely worth a visit when you're in Phoenix, Arizona. Eventually, at its western end, the road terminates in the convergence of the Saltangala Rivers. I really gotta ask Matt, like, what, what's, what's his relationship with Phoenix? I don't think he's from Phoenix. I can't remember what's on his, his uh, I can't remember what his address is. Ah, oh, Matt, where do you live? I have a feeling you live. It's, I would remember if it was Phoenix. I d it's not Phoenix. Matt's probably also like, Simon, please don't tell people where I live. <laughs> Okay, sorry. So with everything I've told you in mind, I hope you now have a decent understanding of the city and the situation that the police were struggling with because all hell was about to break loose. The Nightmare Begins In August of 2005, the first crime that would eventually be attributed to the baseline killer occurred, but it was not murder. Instead, it was a sexual assault that served as a jumping-off point in an increasingly violent set of crimes that would ultimately lead to murder. On August the 6th of that year, the Phoenix Police Department received a call stating that three young girls had been attacked by a man wielding a gun outside a church on Baseline Road. When they arrived, the girls said their attacker had ambushed them and then fled into the night on foot. They said that he was a light-skinned black man with dreadlocks who wore a strange floppy fisherman's hat and had pointed a gun at them, ushered them out of sight behind the church and sexually assaulted them. All three girls were underage at the time and unfortunately police were not able to locate a suspect based on the information they had been provided. Fortunately, DNA evidence was present on the girls' clothes and skin and it was collected and sent away for processing. The girls were then told that when the results returned, they'd have to run that information through a national database to compare it to all known sex offenders. However, this would not yield any immediate results. Phoenix's crime wave had pushed all departments and city services to the breaking point and a growing backlog at the evidence testing site was delaying all results by almost two years. What? I feel like this is one of those crimes where it's like, okay, guy does serious, he sexually assaults some underage girls. I feel like that's one of those crimes that should probably be bumped up the list of like priorities at the lab. It shouldn't be like, okay, well, we're running this DNA for someone's dog who took a poo on the sidewalk and we want to issue them a hundred dollar fine or whatever. They should be like, how about we run this DNA from this uh, guy sexually assaulted underage girls? Maybe that is, uh, maybe that should be a priority, yeah? Maybe. Just me. By then, the baseline killer's identity would already be known and he would be behind bars, but only after taking the lives of nine people. And that, that's why we should bump up that priority for the guys sexually assaulting children, okay? The next of the killer's crimes took place exactly nine days later, on August the 14th, 2005. This time, the crime started as a home robbery, but evolved into sexual assault once the killer realized that there was a woman inside the home with him. After he had left, the woman called the police and gave them a detailed description. Once again, the attacker was described as a black man with dreadlocks, and the woman even managed to give an accurate description of the same unique hat. The specific detail, combined with the second assault's proximity to the first crime, should have been enough to tip off police that they were dealing with a repeat offender. However, as investigators would later admit, it was a crucial detail that was simply missed. The rest of the description was simply too generic to be of any use. Once again, DNA was collected from the women, but it would hit the same set of roadblocks. The following month, on September the 8th, the same man would officially earn the title of killer by claiming his first life. That night at around 1am, the body of 19-year-old Georgia Thompson was discovered by the Tempe Police Department outside her apartment complex. 
she had been shot in the head. When piecing together the timeline that led up to her death, police learned that Georgia worked multiple jobs. She was a waitress at Hooters as well as an exotic dancer at a bar called Skins in Scottsdale, a nearby suburb of Phoenix. <laughs> what a creative name for a strip club. Skins. Earlier that day, before her scheduled shift at Skins, Georgia and one of her co-workers had been seen drinking together at a bar called the Acme Roadhouse. The bar was not far from her apartment. After finishing their drinks, Georgia had left the car parked outside the bar and rode with her co-worker to Skins to work their shift together. After this, the co-worker gave Georgia a ride back to Acme Roadhouse, dropped her off beside her car, and watched and waited for Georgia to drive away. She was the last person to ever see her alive. Based on Georgia's high-risk profession, police assumed that she must have been targeted and followed home by someone who she'd met while dancing. They reviewed camera footage from inside the establishment, as well as footage from the Acme Roadhouse, and saw Georgia carrying drinks and dancing. However, they did not notice anyone explicitly watching her, following her, or behaving strangely. It was a dead end, and the police were once again unable to find a suspect. The strangest part about the whole murder, police later said in a press release, was that no motive could ever be established. George's purse, car keys, and several shopping bags were discovered with her body, but nothing seemed to be missing. That ruled out robbery, but her clothing was also still intact, and there was no evidence that she'd been sexually assaulted. This, along with the gunshot to the head, left police feeling that the murderer had likely targeted Georgia for a specific, unknown reason. Since she was not native to Phoenix and had no family living within Arizona, this put the police on the hunt for someone within Georgia's inner circle of friends. It was a logical conclusion to draw based on what little evidence they had to work with, but their hunch was completely wrong. Yeah, but completely fair. Because it's like, of course, if you're investigating a crime, like CSI, it's always the husband. It's always the wife. It's always the baby. It's always someone they know. It's very rarely a random killing. So it's entirely fair to start this way. Just unfortunately, sometimes it turns out that he is an entirely random killing, which is... Uh, that, that complicates matters, doesn't it? As was stated earlier, Georgia was the first homicide victim of the baseline killer, and he targeted her at random, and no reason for her murder has ever been established. It is likely that targeting her was a crime of opportunity, like the other women and girls, only this time he may have been interrupted, or something else may have gone wrong. She may have recognized him, may have fought back, or he may have simply lost his nerve. We will simply never know. Over the next two weeks, two more sexual assaults occurred on or near Baseline Road. The first occurred on September the 15th at around 9.40pm, the other on September the 20th at 10.30pm. The latter of these two would turn out to be more significant. That night, a pregnant woman and her friends were traveling on foot down Vineyard Road, a road one block north of Baseline, when a black man, matching the description provided by the other woman, jumped out at them, pressed a gun to the woman's pregnant belly, and told them to be silent, or he would shoot them. Here. Just off the road, the baseline killer sexually assaulted both of them while continuing to point the gun at them. At one point during the assault, one woman was able to wrestle the gun away from their attacker, but when she aimed at him and pulled the trigger, it did not fire. It was a nightmare scenario. The man then took hold of the gun, turned it back on them, and then threatened them once again. He said if they tried anything, the baby would die. Oh my god, can you imagine that? That is a nightmare. It's the sort of shit that happens in your dreams, right? Where you're like being attacked by something or someone and you get the weapon and it doesn't work. You're like, oh no. <laughs> Actual nightmare. There's only one time in my life where I've been like, uh-oh, have I had a nightmare? And it wasn't like any violent crime or anything. I was on a cable car and I'm just like riding this cable car just up this mountain. It was in like some random place in China. <laughs> and it's just like, it just starts making the craziest sounds like from the wheels, like on the, on the, the wire that's running over. And it's over this massive gorge. And it just starts making these crazy, I've been on many cable cars. I'd never heard some sounds like this. And it's just like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, we're going to die. We're going to die. And it's just me and these other two people in this cable car. And we're all looking at each other like, and no one says anything. And then we all get off the cable car at the end. Uh, sorry, during that cable car ride, I'm like, 
Maybe this is a dream. Maybe this is a dream. Because I feel like this cable car is about to plunge into that valley. And I'm like pin actually pinching myself. Like as you do, you know, when you want to wake up from a dream. And then so we're all looking at each other. And then we get off the cable car at the other end. And everything's fine. And I look at the other two people on the cable car with me. And I'm like, did you guys think that was normal? And they were like, no, it's terrified. And I was like, oh my God, that was the scariest thing that happened to me. It was terrifying. I hate cable cars now. Oh my God. That was the, probably one of the scariest things that happened in my life. <laughs> and no, I don't. And we didn't say anything to the operator. We were just like, okay, getting on with our day. <laughs> oh yeah. The story's not even over. So this cable car takes me up this mountain. It is a giant mountain. It's like a 45 minute cable ride. And it's about lunchtime. And I'm like, there's no shot that I'm getting back on that cable car to go down. So I literally spend the entire rest of the day scrambling down some random mountain in the middle of China. Just like climbing down to my hotel. <laughs> it took me the whole day because I'm not going on that cable car again. <laughs> Oh my god, sorry. That was... I got... <laughs> that was terrible. After the assault, the man scooped up handfuls of dirt from the ground beneath him in his hand, forced them to spit in it, and rubbed the mixture onto their skin in an attempt to destroy any DNA evidence that they may have left behind. Afterwards, he fled the scene on foot and did not return. Wait, is that actually a way to do something? <laughs> what? Shortly after the attack, police arrived and began processing the scene. Surprisingly, the man's method of destroying his DNA was not completely ludicrous as it made collecting usable samples fairly difficult. Really? Okay, well now you know, you're welcome criminals. What was collected was then sent off to the same lab that was scheduled to process the other DNA evidence, but neither it nor the woman's statements would go very far in aiding the search. However, as horrific as this assault was, it did do one very important thing. It finally allowed the police to connect all the sexual assaults around Baseline Road together as they began to realize that they were hunting for a single suspect instead of multiple suspects. They knew that the attacker had been on foot, so they assumed he must live or work nearby, and this realization is what permanently tied him to Baseline Road. But police had not yet connected the assault to the murder of George Thompson. So instead of the baseline killer, their suspect was originally given the moniker, the baseline uh, word that begins with R and ends in is that I can't say on YouTube because then I won't get any monetization and I need those sweet YouTube dollars. I will continue to use the name I've been using for this entire episode for demonetization reasons, but be aware that at this point, they still did not know the extent of his crimes. Thank you. Appreciate it, Matt. <laughs> Looking out for my financial interests. The Serial Shooter Across the city, as part of a completely separate set of crimes, the man who would someday become known as the Serial Shooter was loading a 22 caliber rifle for another night of terror. By this point in our story, he had already claimed the lives of several victims and had been active for at least three full months. However, before I get ahead of myself, we need to back up and talk about the victims of the Serial Shooter and how the spree began, because his first victims were not even human. In April of 2005, nearly a full year before police would realize they were hunting for a serial shooter, a local rancher living just outside of Phoenix ran from his home after hearing several loud pops and a commotion late at night. At first, he saw no danger. His horses were running wild and bucking, but the source of the sound had disappeared. Down the road, a car's taillights were fading into the distance, but it was too dark to see the make or model. Taking inventory of his animals, the rancher saw that they were spooked, but that was nothing that couldn't be undone. It was, he assumed, just a few rowdy teens setting off firecrackers and causing trouble the way that he had when he was younger. Then one of his horses collapsed. After a quick examination, the rancher saw blood pouring from six gunshot wounds on the animal's body. Oh my god. That horse's shooting was the first of the evening. 
but it wasn't the last. While cruising the streets in the back roads of Phoenix, a light-colored sedan would roll down its windows, its driver would fire several shots, and then the engine would roar as the car sped away. Many of the shots missed their targets, and houses, trees, and fences nearby were peppered with tiny 22 caliber bullets and shotgun pellets. Residents would call the police, but the shooter would be long gone once they arrived. The next morning, several dogs and cats were found dead in their owners' yards. These were senseless acts, but they didn't stop on that night. Within a few weeks, people's pets were being brought inside at night out of fear as word spread that someone, still assumed to be a teenager, was using a rifle to terrorize their neighborhoods. However, what they did not know yet was that, like the baseline killer, the serial shooter was about to escalate. Yeah, it's not surprising. Like, shooting the animals and torturing animals? It's like, that's some serial killer 101 shit, isn't it? Like, always. On May the 17th, 2005, after shooting multiple horses earlier that night, the sedan pulled to the curb at the intersection of 43rd Avenue and Encanto Boulevard. On the sidewalk beside her, Tony Mendez was riding a bicycle and pulling a small wagon containing food and other essentials for his family. The shots rang out at around 10.40pm, but there were no direct witnesses. Instead, residents of 43rd Avenue exited their homes and discovered Tony slumped across his bicycle with several bullet wounds in his back. The shooter had once again vanished before being seen, and when an ambulance arrived, there was nothing the paramedics could do. A week later, on the 24th of May, after another slew of animal slayings earlier in the day, Reginald Remillard, a 56-year-old homeless veteran, was found shot on a sidewalk bench that he frequently slept on. Several weeks after that, 20-year-old David Estrada was also found dead in the parking lot of a jack-in-the-box restaurant. The shooter was growing bolder, shooting people in busier places and waiting less time between attacks. Due to the random nature of the attacks and the lack of DNA evidence, police were at a huge disadvantage. There was no motive, and the victims were not robbed, were not related, and did not belong to any specific demographic. As a result, police did not immediately recognize that these shootings were related. Instead, they were assumed to be isolated incidents and attributed to local gang members engaging in drive-by shootings of rival gangs. However, another thing that they would not realize for even longer was that the serial shooter was actually the serial shooters. They weren't looking for one man acting alone, they were looking for a duo. The duo that was working together, riding in the same car, watching each other's backs, and pushing one another to keep killing. Wait. So we started this episode out with me thinking it was one person who was a baseline killer and a serial shooter. Then we found out there's the baseline killer and the serial shooter. And now we found out there's the baseline killer and two serial shooters. Phoenix, I hope you got this city this sorted out because no one's coming to visit if you've got like multiple serial murderers operating at the same time in your city, which is terrifying. Return to Baseline Road. As the two men, who would someday share the moniker the serial shooter, were sowing a feeling of chaos throughout Phoenix's neighborhoods, the baseline killer was continuing his crime spree largely unabated. After sexually assaulting the pregnant woman and her friends on Vineyard Road on the night of September the 15th, he committed two robberies in a single day. First, on September the 28th, he pointed a gun at a woman on Baseline Road, robbed her, and then fled the scene. Later that day, he did the same to another woman, but this time he sexually assaulted her as well. Five days later, on November the 3rd, the killer was growing so bold that he committed four separate crimes in the span of a few hours. At 8pm, he robbed a man on foot. Then, 10 minutes later, he sexually assaulted a woman across the street less than 500 feet from where the robbery had occurred. After this, he traveled several miles north to North 32nd Street, where he robbed a sex shop called Cupid's Toy Box. 
from the register, he pocketed $720 before crossing the street to commit yet another sexual assault. This time, his target was a woman who was placing items into a donation box outside a charity shop. She later told police that her attacker had been wearing a Halloween mask and oversized novelty glasses. She said that he had forced his way into her car, assaulted her, and then forced her to drive him several blocks away from the sex shop because, by his own admission, he had just robbed it. Admitting your crimes while you're doing a crime, what are you doing? <laughs> Eventually, based on the descriptions in the witness statements taken from the numerous victims that day, the police were able to link the crimes together and file them away under the Baseline Killer's file, who they were still referring to as the Baseline R-Wordist. Four days later, on November the 7th, the same man committed three more crimes in a single day. However, this time, they were all robberies. This guy's just out on the loose. How is he not getting caught? He's doing extreme numbers of violent crimes. And the police are just like, oh, we're real busy. We're real busy. This seems like it should be a top priority. Four employees and customers were held at gunpoint inside a Mexican restaurant called Las Brasas on North 32nd Street. Do you think there's not that many robberies of like restaurants and stuff today? Because I feel like even the banks are like, we're a cashless branch. And so it's like, although there's a bank on my street and it's like, there's a sign saying like, we're a cashless branch. And then the other day I saw like a security truck outside it. And I'm like, well, how cashless are you? Because that's a security truck, like either taking money or dropping it off. Right? Like cashless, huh? <laughs> like maybe you should be more subtle about it if you're actually holding cash. Or maybe they have like a small amount of cash or something. But anyway, I'm just saying like, I bet restaurants and stuff and shops are robbed less because everyone's like, yeah, pay by card, pay by card or Apple Pay. Boop, done. Right? There's not that much money being changed changing hands anymore. The valuables were taken and the register was emptied. The robber then fled the scene but did not go far. Just across the street, he ran into and threatened a group of four people, waving his gun in the air and demanding their valuables. While leaving the scene, he fired a single bullet in the air, either in celebration or as a warning to those who might follow him. Reports varied. After these two days of mayhem, police were beginning to dial up the pressure, and it was possibly for this reason that the baseline killer took a small vacation. He wouldn't rob, assault, or kill anyone again for over a month. When he did return, he returned in terrible fashion. On December the 12th, at 6.55 p.m., a restaurant owner named Peter Okoa heard a commotion coming from the alley behind his restaurant. Believing that the sound was being caused either by children playing games or homeless people rummaging through the garbage again, he opened the rear service door to scare off the trespasser. He took a step out, looked down the alley, and spotted a man standing over a woman's body. There were ribbons of blood pouring from her head and running across the pavement into a drain. In the man's hand, Peter saw a gun. Then he raised it, pointing it directly at him. The man then pulled the trigger, but it did not fire. Like it had done in the hands of his victim months earlier, the unreliable weapon had jammed and Peter was able to scurry back inside the restaurant and bar the door before the man could reach him. He then stepped back and listened as a barrage of kicks and punches landed against the door, attempting to break it down. Thankfully, the door held, and Peter was able to phone the police from the restaurant's office. Sometime later, officers from the Phoenix PD arrived at the alley. The woman, 39-year-old Tina Washington, was a schoolteacher who had been returning home from work when the man pulled into the alley, assaulted her, and shot her twice in the head. She had died almost immediately. At first, they once again believed nothing of value had been taken from the victim's body. However, after speaking to Tina's adult children, they learned Tina always wore a small ring that displayed her children's birthstones. It had been a gift from them, and engraved on the inside of the band, the inscription read, we love mum. Tina was the baseline killer's second homicide victim, and the close call with Peter had rattled his nerves yet again. After committing one more robbery the following day, the baseline killer's spree would be paused for approximately two more months as he waited for the heat to die down. Indiscriminate Killing in November of that year, 44-year-old Nathan Schoffer was walking his dog down the sidewalk when a car pulled up beside him and rolled down its window. 
Nathaniel looked up and saw the barrel of a gun sticking in his direction. Then in what felt like slow motion, light flashed from the muzzle. The dog yelped and pulled back against its leash and then collapsed. Nathaniel tried to put himself between the gun and his dog, but there was another flash. Nathaniel was on his back as the car pulled away and he died later that night. For the past several weeks, police have been searching for a shit serial shooter of dogs, horses, and they now suspected people. But the shooters were very good at what they did. Their aim could have used some improvement, they knew, but they chose their targets carefully, and they knew the roads well. They had now injured dozens and claimed the lives of four people. The only thing connecting them together was the caliber of bullets used, 22 caliber. But that's pretty common, right? 22 caliber is like the little standard bullet. But just because the shooters were good didn't mean that they didn't make mistakes. On December the 29th, 2005, while parked outside a bartending school in Tempe, they waited anxiously for class to be dismissed. At around 7.30pm, the doors to the school swung open, students exited through the front door, and several shots rang out. The students scrambled, the car sped away, and nobody was injured. For one reason or another, every single shot had missed its target. When the police arrived, the students described the car as a light-colored Toyota Camry. This claim was later corroborated by several other survivors after different shooting incidents, and it was the police's first real break in the case. <laughs> it's, like, it's, a, it's a light Toyota Camry. <laughs> I feel like that's half the cars in America. The Toyota Camry had been the best-selling car in America for nine of the previous ten years, and the vast majority of them were either grey, tan, light blue, or white. The car that they were searching for was, by definition, the most nondescript car in the country. Later that night, after realizing they had failed, the shooters decided to continue their spree out of frustration. First, a dog was killed on East Glen Rosa Avenue. Twenty minutes later, 44-year-old Jose Ortiz was fatally shot, followed by 28-year-old Marco Carrillo, less than a block away. After this, they killed three more dogs before firing at a man named Tommy Tordai and an unnamed off-duty Marine. Both were hit, and both would survive. However, Timothy would never walk again. The next day, that same Camry pulled up slowly alongside a sex worker, and the driver called to her as if he was going to hire her. The shotgun blast hit her in the side, and she was taken to hospital, where she thankfully survived. She was able to give a description of the car, but not of the drivers. Following these two days of violence, the serial shooters would not attack again for over six months, but there was still another man who would keep the fear alive in their place. On February the 20th, 2006, the baseline killer committed his first double murder. On that day, 38-year-old Romelia Vargas and 34-year-old Myrna Palmer Roman were both setting up their food trucks outside a construction site on the corner of 91st and Lower Buckeye Road. They were preparing to serve lunch to the crowd, but since it was so early, the truck hadn't yet opened, and its service windows were locked tight. That's when the baseline killer made his move. Hours later, as customers began to line up outside the food truck, they realized that something wasn't right. This truck was a regular visitor to the area, and Romelia and Myrna were always set up by the time their lunch breaks rolled around each day. Hesitantly, one of the job site workers peered inside and saw the women's bodies lying on the floor. They'd been shot in the head. According to the police, the women had been attacked and killed inside the truck, and their pants had been unzipped. However, they had not been sexually assaulted. Once again, the killer had either been interrupted or perhaps had never intended to sexually assault them in the first place. It was unclear. Based on the race of the victims and the location of the crime, they once again assumed that the murders must have been drug or gang-related. They were wrong, of course, but this was one of many assumptions made by an overworked police department that some people say caused the investigation to drag out unnecessarily long. After this, the baseline killer did not slow down. On March the 15th, outside an Asian restaurant on 24th Street, he drew a gun on two more women, co-workers Liliana Sanchez Cabrera and Chow Cho, as they were driving home from work. With the gun pointed at them, the killer climbed into the car and forced them to drive. What exactly happened after is unknown, 
but both women's bodies were discovered in the streets approximately one mile apart. Three weeks later, the body of Kristen Nicole Gibbons was found after a local man reported that it noticed streaks of blood staining the gravel of a parking lot near his work. Like the other women, Nicole had been shot in the head, but by the time police discovered the body, it had already been in the Phoenix Sun for several weeks and was emanating a strong odor. A week later, the body of Sofia Nunes was discovered by a seven-year-old son after she failed to pick him up from school. According to the child, after walking home alone and wiggling underneath the partially open garage door to get inside, he discovered his mother's body lying in the bathtub. Blood was leaking from her forehead. A month after this, another woman was abducted and sexually assaulted outside the same restaurant where Liliana Sanchez Cabrera and Chao Cho had been abducted from two months earlier. She was held at gunpoint, asked to strip, and told that she would die if she did not comply. However, realizing that the man intended to sexually assault her, she fought back, not caring if she lived or died. Infuriated, the man raised the gun and pulled the trigger, but the weapon failed to fire. Bro, your gun has failed twice now, in our story, like that we know of. How have you not replaced the gun? What's wrong with you? If your gun jams, time for a new gun, or service the gun. Like, obviously. As the woman fought ferociously to escape the man's grasp and was able to get the car out and run down the street, she left him sitting in the car, but when the police arrived, he was gone. The Summer of Fear Commences Up until this point, Phoenix locals had only heard rumors of the police's worries. They knew that crime was skyrocketing, a fact that would influence the next round of elections, but they didn't yet know the extent of the crime sprees. Now the serial shooters had started up again, and they had been linked to over 38 separate shootings. Many of them had not resulted in human death, but over 25 animals had been killed and 15 people had been shot at random, five of those 15 dying. Add to this the countless bullet holes that were discovered across the city from missed shots, and it became impossible to deny that something very big was happening that no public officials would talk about on record. Moreover, rumblings about the baseline killer were also circulating, which were driving local residents and business owners on and around Baseline Road mad with fear. The killer had taken eight lives, but so far, the police had only tied him to five. Knowing that something needed to be done to protect the public, the police issued a statement saying that residents, particularly pedestrians walking alone at night, should remain extremely vigilant while in the areas where the shootings had occurred. Unfortunately, as we've discussed, the shootings were occurring all across the city, so this declaration actually did more to stir panic than to soothe it. I feel like in America, right, I feel like Arizona is probably one of those states where you can like walk around with a gun, right? It's like in the south, like Texas. Like, you can just wear a gun. Surely this is exactly the sort of thing that would encourage people to go out and get guns. And then at some point, this serial shooter and the baseline dude, they're going to be like, hey, remove your clothes. And everyone's going to be like, okay, I'm going to remove my bang! He's dead! Like, isn't that the sort of thing that drives... No, I'm not, not pro-gun or whatever. I don't know where to be on that whole minefield. But isn't this the sort of thing that gets people to, like, self-defend and be, like, super vigilant? Just, like, walking down the street, hand on that holster, like... Just try it, mother. Seemingly overnight, gun sales rose by 50% across the city. I genuinely didn't read that ahead of time, but Matt and I are on the same page, and gun shops struggled to keep ammunition in stock. People were calling for action and demanding answers about what was being done to protect them, but the people, uh, but the answer to that question was a complicated one. Two task forces were formed, one for each killer. The police were already exhausted. Now detectives and street cops alike were being assigned double shifts and asked to give up their days off when possible. It was a bad situation, but things are about to get even worse. Most people will agree that the Phoenix Summer of Fear truly began when a woman was snatched from a car wash by the baseline killer. 
This was significant because it was the first time that the killer had been captured on camera. On June the 29th, 2006, 37-year-old Carmen Miranda was vacuuming out her car at a car wash on Thomas Road. She was on the phone with her boyfriend as she worked, but at approximately 9.30pm she told him to hold on because a homeless man was approaching her and asking for money. She then screamed and the phone was disconnected. By the time the police and Carmen's family arrived at the car wash minutes later, the killer was gone and neither Carmen nor her car were at the scene. While reviewing the security footage, police were able to witness the events that night in as much clarity as the grainy black and white footage could provide. They saw Carmen's car parked by the vacuums as a man approached casually on foot and out of frame. They saw him speak to her, and at first, he didn't appear to be a threat. Then out of nowhere, he attacked, forcing her into the backseat of her own car before driving away. The footage was too poor to see the man's face, but there was no doubt in the police's mind that they had finally captured footage of the killer. Carmen's car was discovered hours later outside a barbershop just down the road. Inside it, her body waited with a single gunshot wound to the head. The next day, police released the footage. This was the spark that triggered the panic. For the first time, the public saw how the killer operated. They didn't see a madman jumping from the shadows. They saw a cool, quiet, collected man who went from friendly and approachable to ferocious in a split second. As news stations aired the footage, police hoped that someone would recognize the man by his clothes or mannerisms and come forward. They provided a description of the man's voice and a police artist's sketch that had been created using the descriptions given from the surviving victims. It showed a black man with a pencil-thin moustache and his signature fishing hat. And there is an image which will pop up on the screen now. I'm looking at it as well. While holding, it seems like a good sketch. Like, that looks like... A, you see some of these sometimes, you are know, like, that is not a person. <laughs> that is not a real person. This looks like a person. For instance, that afternoon, Detective Stacy Dirge of the Phoenix Police Department said, This started with a robbery and sexual assault and we now have five victims of homicide definitely related to him. Detective Dirge also made it clear that at the time, the random shootings and the homicides on Baseline Road were being treated as independent investigations as the department no longer believed that the perpetrators were related, something that many detectives had been falsely convinced of for some time. While both were targeting victims of opportunity, the details of the crimes and their apparent motivations were simply too different. The Baseline Killer was killing and robbing for sexual satisfaction and money. The serial shooter was killing to instill fear. Detective Judge was hoping that the public's reaction would be calm and measured. <laughs> Detective Judge is an octavist. But it was not. After the press conference, it's like, hello, we've got some news. It turns out there are possibly three serial killers operating in the city. Ah! Please remain calm. Remain calm. After the press conference, deep trepidation set in across Phoenix as people asked themselves if they really needed to leave their homes for any reason. Most people had to work or attend classes, and there was no getting around that, but anything non-essential was simply deemed too risky. People took different paths to and from work, did not stop for breakfast or go out for lunch, did not catch a movie or meet friends for dinner or drinks. Some even refrained from going to places where essential shopping and weekly chores were done, such as grocery stores and laundromats. Church attendance even took a hit, which is usually the opposite of what happens during times of uncertainty. But this type of self-imposed lockdown persisted for weeks as everyone waited with bated breath for the police to announce that they'd made an arrest, but the nightmare seemed endless. Every night, officers patrolled the streets, looking for their suspects and chasing down everything that sounded even remotely like a gunshot, yet every morning the public awoke to discover that no arrests had been made. During this heightened awareness, at least five more random shootings occurred, and while no human lives were lost, several more houses and dogs were slain. Frustrated by the police's perceived incompetency, a civilian group calling themselves the Guardian Angels formed. They took to the streets and began patrolling alongside officers. Many of them were retired police and military themselves. They wore red berets and camouflage pants, stood outside of businesses and restaurants, and kept careful watch for cars cruising without purpose. 
During the day, they hung flyers to make their presence known, and at night, they would take calls and escort single women to and from work when the police were too preoccupied to accompany them. Sounds like an excellent opportunity for the baseline killer or the shooting dude to, like, well, put on a red beret and join their ranks and escort women home and uh, do their thing. Like, that's the problem when you have, like, militias. Combining these volunteers with the increased police patrols meant that for several weeks during the height of the panic, it was hard to find a spot within the city that wasn't being watched by someone. The possibility that a gunshot would go unheard was minimal, however, somehow, the shootings continued. Another major issue that the police had to contend with around this time was a confession by a man named James Dwayne Mullins. James claimed to be the baseline killer. However, his confession was later determined to be false after he incorrectly recounted the details of Georgia Thompson's death. If you recall, Georgia was the dancer who worked at the strip club called Skins. She was the baseline killer's first official homicide victim. In the end, the charges against Mullins were dropped, but his false confession severely hindered the investigation by wasting the police's few precious resources. I really hope he got some, in some serious trouble for that. Because I don't know what mental disorder compels you to, commit crime, to admit to crimes that you didn't commit, but you are wasting police's time which is enormously valuable when they're on the hunt for a serial killer you should go to jail for a little while to be honest frustrated the phoenix pd once again turned to the public for help by handing out flyers and directing several full-size billboards across the city that featured the baseline killer's sketch with it an offer for a hundred thousand dollars was advertised for any information that could lead police to a suspect this worked well a little too well. According to officer Paul Penzone, there were over 500 unique daily callers as soon as the billboards went up, each of which were offering up their neighbor, their co-worker, their college buddy that they hadn't seen in over a decade, and so on. Everyone was grasping at straws, and sorting through these calls was only compounding the department's staffing issues. Lead detectives on the two task forces were working 20 hours a day, sleeping in their offices and downing enough caffeine to kill a horse, pardon the joke. They knew that they were working at an unsustainable pace, but thankfully, their efforts were about to pay off. The Tip On July the 21st, 2006, a man named Ron Horton picked up his phone and hesitantly dialed the number on the billboard. As the line rang, he was both conflicted and riddled with guilt. When an officer finally answered, he said regretfully that he had information about the identity of the serial shooter. It was an old friend that he'd recently connected with, Samuel Dieterman. According to Ron, he and Dieterman had been drinking buddies at a local bar called the Stardust Inn, but Dieterman hadn't been around in several months. Several days prior to the call, his friend had reappeared and the two had shared a drink together, but as the night went on, Dieterman became remorseful and admitted that he and his roommate were the ones behind the serial shootings. He said that together they participated in what they called RVing, which stood for recreational violence. Ron then said that after the confession, he wasn't sure if Dieterman was serious or just drunk off his ass. He didn't want to get his friend in trouble because he had already had several prior run-ins with the law, but that all changed when Ron saw a news report that the serial shooters had claimed another victim. 22-year-old Robin Blansek had been returning to her parents' house after a fight with her boyfriends when the same light-colored Toyota Camry came around the corner and gunned her down. It was her death, Ron said, that he felt responsible for. Not wasting any time, the shooter task force immediately stationed unmarked cars outside the Stardust Inn. They didn't know if or when Dieterman would return, but that bar was their best bet. Hours later, the Camry pulled into the parking lot. There were two men inside, Dieterman and another whom the police had never seen. They ran the plate number, and the name Dale Hausner appeared on the screen. He was the other half of Phoenix's most elusive duo. As officers watched and waited, Hausner pulled up to the front entrance. Dieterman climbed out of the passenger seat and went inside, and then Hausner drove away, exiting the parking lot. A single, unmarked police car silently followed them. 
and then several more fell in line a short way down the road. Inside the bar, Dieterman met up with Ron Horton, but the two then soon left for a nearby casino. Officers followed them there. As this was happening, Hausner was cruising the streets near he and Dieterman's apartment, ostensibly looking for potential victims. After spending a short time together at the casino, Ron made an excuse to get away from Dieterman. He said that he'd need to find another ride home. Ron hoped that this abrupt change of plans would not spook his friend, and it didn't. Dieterman stayed at the casino for a while longer and then called for Hausner to come and pick him up. When Hausner arrived later that evening, Detective Clark Schwarzkopf of the Phoenix PD noticed a long black bag in Hausner's trunk that was about the length and width of a rifle. He wanted to make the arrest right then and there, but he knew that he had no actual evidence against them. If these two men were the serial shooters, which he firmly believed they were, he had to play everything by the book. Over the next several hours, Schwarzkopf and the other detectives on the task force continued to carefully tail the Camry as it cruised around the city, slowing near sidewalks with pedestrians. They were hunting, Schwarzkopf knew, and if he saw the barrel of a gun rise through the window, there would be no time to intervene. As this was happening, other officers in the area were trying to get ahead of the situation by driving several blocks ahead of them and shouting out the windows at pedestrians and streetwalkers, telling them to go home, get inside, and stay off the streets. It was, Schwarzkopf said, the most stressful night of his career. Isn't this putting innocent people in danger? Don't you have enough? Like, can't you arrest them and then go through the car and find some trace evidence or run the DNA or just something? Because it feels very risky, like just letting these guys cruise around looking to murder someone. Like, what was if they do actually kill someone and you could have stopped them? Nobody in Phoenix died that night at the hands of the shooters. And the next day, police obtained an emergency wiretap warrant and stealthily set up surveillance equipment in the vacant apartment adjacent to the one that Dieterman and Hausner shared. On August 2, 2006, they captured all the proof they needed to arrest the both of them. That night, either by dumb luck or because it was a regular topic of conversation for them, Hausner and Dieterman were recorded discussing their past crimes and plotting new ones. They talked about how their victim sounded when they were shot, and Hausner said he liked it when they were able to sneak up on someone because it gave him a better chance to line up his shot and hit his mark. On the television in front of them, a newscaster was discussing their crimes when Hausner became frustrated that specific details were not being provided about where his victim had been shot. He was upset because he wanted to know how much his aim had improved. At one point as the night progressed, Hausner vocalized his intention to target members of the Guardian Angels to send a message to those that he saw as the city's vigilante mob. Later, while discussing how to turn the city against the Angels while also sowing even more confusion, Dieterman said, I want to shoot someone with one of them berets on. I mean, while wearing one. I want one on my head while I'm shooting. So if there's somebody, like, down the road that sees it, he was wearing a red beret. He was shot by an angel. At one point during the night, they watched another newscast discussing the baseline killer. This is when police became aware that the men were unofficially competing with the baseline killer from afar and even keeping score. It was simply a game to them. At one point, Hausner became agitated because the reporter forgot to mention one of his victims, thus not giving him credit for the death. Exhausted, Hausner shouted, It's higher than that. What about the guy I shot on 17th Avenue in the yard? These guys are crazy. Later, while getting high on methamphetamine and giggling like children, the pair joked about missing a live broadcast of a psychic who was supposed to provide information on them. They laughed at the Phoenix PD's incompetence and compared their investigation to the FBI and Secret Service's investigation of the DC sniper. They were disappointed that the police had not made any progress. Little did they know the police are literally next door listening to them. Hearing themselves being ridiculed was enough to turn the officers' stomachs, but the most twisted part of the evening occurred at 8.45pm as the movie The Jungle Book played on the television. At this time, Halsner's young daughter, a two-year-old who lived in the apartment with him and Dieterman, was heard being put to bed. Jokingly, as Halsner tucked her in and kissed her goodnight, he told the girl to encourage them to not kill anybody else. He said, Say don't kill anybody. The child, who could barely speak, groggily repeated the words, and Dieterman said, 
all right, since you asked. The transcript I found continues for another dozen pages or so, but I honestly don't care to add anything else from it. It's all the same sickening type of banter between two monsters who saw their victims as points to be scored against another killer. Having heard enough themselves, the police were ready to make their move. They were presented with an opportunity when Dieterman exited the apartment to toss a bag of trash into the dumpster. They surrounded him, subdued him, and then took the key to his apartment. Knowing that the two-year-old was still inside, a SWAT team quietly entered and surrounded Hausner as his back was turned. He was reportedly facing the kitchen counter, and when he turned around and saw that he was now on the other side of the barrel, he shouted, Jesus Christ, and dropped to the floor, allowing himself to be arrested. Yeah, it'd be fucking intense. Can you imagine just turning around? And there's like an entire SWAT team just pointing guns at you stealthily into your apartment. You'd be like, ah, guys, could you knock? No, get down on the ground. Cool, though. These guys are going to get death penalty, right? This feels like it's New, not New Mexico. What's it called? Arizona? Arizona's in the South, right? I feel like there's definitely more places in the South that are still strapping people in a chair and turning the lights, uh, turning the electrics on, right? Let's go. After putting Dieterman and Hausner in separate squad cars and handling the toddler over to Child Protective Services, they began combing through the apartment. They found notebooks detailing the crime spree, a scorecard, maps of the shootings, and boxes of newspapers that mentioned their and the baseline killer's murders. The next few days went by quickly. While speaking to former friends and family of the men, police learned that Hausner was a custodian at the Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport and had been employed there for six years since 1999. He also worked part-time as a ringside photographer for Ring Sports Magazine and acted as a thief for hire that stole specific products for people. Shortly before his arrest, as part of his photography job, Hausner had recently interviewed and photographed heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson while he was training. When asked about this interview years later, Tyson remembered Hausner as a small guy, but a nice guy. And that was the best way to describe him. He was short, unassuming, a bit timid. Nobody in his personal life suspected that he was capable of being the killer. However, while interrogating the men, police came to a realization. Like most serial killer duos, one man naturally took charge over the other, and while Dieterman was taller, bulkier, and more intimidating than his rat-based counterpart, Hausner was clearly in charge and enjoyed killing much more than Dieterman did. During their separate interrogations, Hausner shut his mouth and claimed ignorance despite the overwhelming evidence against him. He stated that he believed he had been arrested for theft and possession of methamphetamine. Dieterman, on the other hand, was remorseful and confessed to everything. According to detectives, Hausner had wanted to be a serial killer since he was a child, and even though his criminal history was non-existent on paper, he had a long personal history of violence, arson, and destruction of property. He also held a deep hatred for sex workers, gang members, and homeless people, as well as anyone else he saw as subhuman. He was the mastermind behind the shootings, and Dieterman wasn't even his first killing partner. Before the six-month break in the shootings, between December 2005 and May 2006, Dale Hausner's brother, Jeff Hausner, had allegedly underlined there, taken part in the RVing before Dieterman even moved to the city. The shooting had stopped because Jeff had gotten a job and Dale did not feel comfortable enough to kill on his own. Allegedly, allegedly. This is when he recruited Dieterman to take Jeff's alleged place. <laughs> the reason that the allegedly is underlined in that last paragraph is because although it is suspected by law enforcement that Jeff Hausner was involved in the shootings, he will not be convicted due to lack of evidence. However, he will be convicted of stabbing two men during the time of the shootings because one of the men survived and ID'd him. He'll be given a life sentence for murder. But I won't be mentioning him again in relation to the serial shootings because of the lack of evidence against him. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. The two, just unrelated, also murdering. Christ. I'm sorry, stabbing, not murdering. 
um correction there obviously one of them oh one of the men survived okay so he stabbed two men it seems one of them did die so i take it back he did kill now getting back to established fact police say that regardless of when dieterman started killing he was under hausner's control throughout the attacks and only acted tough to impress his friends dieterman actually hated himself for what he'd done he was of course still just as culpable as hausner but he had also been lonely and vulnerable when hausner recruited him According to Hausner himself in later interviews, Dietmann didn't have the stomach for killing, and it was for this reason that he insisted Dietmann move into his apartment. He wanted to keep an eye on him and make sure that he didn't tell anybody about what they were doing. Unfortunately, he had forgotten that alcohol loosens lips quicker than anything. While in jail and awaiting trial, Dietmann continued to show much remorse for his actions and said that he never intended for things to go so far. He said he allowed Hausner to poison his mind by dragging him into his twisted, violent, and vengeful mindset. However, he also stated that he wasn't trying to diminish his role in the spree either. He accepted a plea bargain to avoid trial, but this plea bargain was little more than a guilty plea. Dietmann agreed to a deal without exclusion of the death penalty so that he'd be free to testify against Hausner at his inevitable trial. Wow. When you're doing a deal and they're not even taking the death penalty off the table as part of your deal, it feels like a bad deal. Two years later, Hausner went before a jury and his charges were read aloud. 25 counts of drive-by shootings, 17 counts of aggravated assault, 18 counts of attempted first-degree murder, 9 counts of cruelty to animals, as well as 3 firearms violations, 2 conspiracy charges, and 1 arson charge. Hasner was still claiming innocence. However, a grief-stricken Dieterman spent three days on the stand of confessing to everything the pair had done. The slayings of Robin Blazek and Claudia Gutierrez Cruz were told in detail, as well as vaguer recollections of other crimes that had been committed while the pair were on drugs. The trial lasted seven months, and during it, Hausner took the stand in his defense. However, his testimony was nothing like Dieterman's. He asserted that Dieterman had acted alone and used his car and firearms to commit the crimes while he was sleeping for work. He claimed that he was a peaceful man who liked to photograph boxes. And it's honestly not the worst offense I've ever heard considering the circumstances, but it basically ignored all the prosecution's evidence. And that was likely because there was no real way to refute it. The recording of their conversations was damning, and surveillance footage, cell phone records, and ballistic evidence found inside the car placed Hausner at the scene of several of the shootings. Well, it sounds like a bit of a bad defense then. If he's like, yeah, I was just at home sleeping, and it's like, yeah, but there's lots of evidence saying that you weren't, like actual evidence rather than just your word. To refute his claims of being a peaceful man, the prosecution also brought up Hausner's ex-wife to testify how she'd been repeatedly beaten, verbally abused, and threatened with a shotgun on multiple occasions. She also said that her ex-husband had forcibly stripped her naked in the streets one day after learning that she was wearing the same outfit that she'd worn on a date with another man. What the f***? man. During closing statements, the lead prosecuting attorney, Vince Imbordino, said, He doesn't look like much. You might have passed him on the street and not noticed him. He doesn't look like a killer. Evil doesn't have a face. When this trial is over, whatever the results, I hope people will remember him for what he is. A coward. An ordinary coward who committed an extraordinary series of crimes. The jury didn't take long to deliberate. They returned the guilty verdict for all but two of the killings for those there was insufficient evidence. At his sentencing, Hausner dropped the innocent act and leaned into the serial killer persona that he had desired to beard build for himself since childhood. He compared himself to Charles Manson while addressing the courtroom, saying, When you think of Manson, 50 years from now, you'll think of Hausner. Then he begged for the death penalty, and the judge granted his wish, remanding him to death row to await his fate. As Hausner was led out of the courtroom, his eyes scanned over each member of the jury's face as he gleefully thanked them all in turn. He gave a thumbs up to the cameras in the back of the room as he was taken away. One month later, Dieterman has his own sentencing. The judge heard his pleas for leniency, 
his many apologies, and the details of his testimony against Hausner. He was given a life sentence in prison without the possibility of role, and he is still in jail to this day. Hausner, on the other hand, was too eager to be put to death. He did not wait for the state of Arizona to fulfill his sentence. His body was discovered inside his cell in 2013 after overdosing on antidepressants. The Nightmare Ends The random shootings ceased immediately, and the public was finally able to breathe a small sigh of relief. However, nobody was truly able to relax because the baseline killer was still on the loose. Yeah, I was wondering about this dude. I was thinking, did I miss something? Did I did I miss a thread in this story about the baseline killer? Because it feels like we're moving to wrap up this episode, and I'm still like, wait, but what about him? Here we go. Once again, the billboards and flyers adorned with the sketch and hotline would come to the rescue. Another tip had been submitted, and it quickly rose to the top of the priority list. The tip came. From the Arizona Parole Board. On September the 4th, 2006, news broke that an arrest had been made in the Baseline Killer case after a warrant had been executed at a residence north of Baseline Road. The home's owner, Wendy Carr, was home at the time, but the police were not there for her. They were there for her husband, 41-year-old Mark Godot. According to the police, while following up on the tip, investigators discovered that Mark matched the scratch quite well and had been released from prison just two months before the Baseline killings began. This was enough to grab their attention, but what really sealed the deal was Mark's criminal history. History. As a man who had spent time in and out of jail, Mark was no stranger to the criminal justice system, and neither was his family. Out of Mark's 12 siblings, six of them were felons, and out of those six, four were serving serious time in a federal penitentiary for violent crimes. <laughs> Some family. According to his father, Mark's criminal career began when he was just a child, but it wasn't until he turned 18 that he would escalate to violent behavior. In 1982, Mark and his brother had attempted to sexually assault a woman, however, neither was convicted, and the woman later recanted her statement to police likely under duress. Mark was then arrested several times in the following years for minor crimes, but it wasn't until August of 1989 that he once again turned violent. That night, Mark attacked and kidnapped a woman, Darlene Fernandez, using a shotgun. She was taken to a hotel, beaten, sexually assaulted, and then held against her will for approximately two days. However, before Mark could decide what to do with her, she was able to escape and was spotted running down the middle of a busy intersection. She was naked and shouting for help. Mark was giving chase. Thankfully, two bystanders intervened, and Darlene was able to escape. Infuriated, Mark threatened the bystanders with his shotgun and told them to keep their mouths shut about what they had seen that night. But the men didn't listen. Instead, they went to the police to corroborate Darlene's story. Later that night, police interviewed Mark, but he claimed that the sex with Darlene had been consensual, and the two bystanders had broken into their hotel room, assaulted him, and then kidnapped Darlene. This was a ludicrous claim that fell apart once the police pointed out that Mark didn't look like he had been beaten because the only wounds on his body were on his knuckles. Yeah, no, 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 they just beat me on my knuckles. I wasn't doing the bad. They just, they very specific, I know, but that's what happens on the spot and charged with aggravated assault. He later pleaded guilty for a reduced sentence, and this should have been the end of the story. However, for some unknown reason, Mark was released from jail while awaiting sentencing and went on to commit other crimes while out on bail. Why are you giving this dude bail? <laughs> what the? In 1990, he entered a Fry's supermarket with a shotgun and demanded money. He then made the cashiers and customers line up in a row as he marched them outside where the police were already waiting for him. He was quickly subdued, and for this stunt, he was arrested and convicted of armed robbery. This charge, plus the aggravated assault charge, earned him a total of 21 years behind bars. This meant he should have been in prison until at least 2012. This would unfortunately not be the case. While imprisoned, Mark's wife, Wendy Carr, did not divorce him. Instead, she chose to stand by his side until he was released. 21 years for these horrible crimes. 
She said that she believed her husband's version of events. They just beat me on the knuckles and stated publicly that Mark was innocent and had been targeted by the Phoenix Police Department because he was black. She also apparently had no problem with the fact that by Mark's own admission, he had been at the hotel there that day to engage in consensual, in quotes, sex with another woman. She did not, however, dispute his involvement in the robbery because, well, how could she? The entire incident had been captured on CCTV and there were over a dozen witnesses. To rationalize his behavior, Wendy stated that Mark had been kicked one too many times while he was down and could not be held responsible for his actions that day. She said that Mark's childhood had been filled with verbal and physical abuse, that his parents had separated when he was young, and that his 12 siblings had been forced to raise themselves. Well, that's all fine and a bad upbringing miserable i'm sure but there's plenty of people who don't go around just robbing stores with a shotgun who have had bad upbringings she also said the drugs are an everyday part of their lives growing up all of his older siblings were users and dealers now while i can't doubt that mark likely came from a broken and abusive home it goes without saying that his actions cannot be excused by that fact thank you we all have personal agency and in my opinion wendy was either simply in denial disingenuous or maybe just plain stupid either way the real tragedy of this entire story is that her fight to have her husband released eventually landed mark in front of a parole board mark had been a model prisoner and in 2004 eight full years before he would have been released he went before the arizona executive clemency board and asserted that he was a changed man reformed and ready to be released back into society doesn't he have to admit then that he did these things he said that he wanted to return to his wife get a job in construction have children and work hard to repay society for his actions i get the feeling that he's going to do something horrible because matt was like yeah and unfortunately he got released early and if he just went on to lead like a law-abiding life having actually been reformed by prison matt would have just said yeah prison actually worked in this case holy rather than like unfortunately so let's see what he gets up to the parole board noted mark's transformation from a young sad boy to a mature remorseful ambitious and introspective man has been inspiring although mark could have fallen into the abyss of bitterness and anger he has chosen to see the positive side of life and the many possibilities it offers as previously stated mark's crime spree began less than two months after his release oh did i forget about that okay there we go while executing the search warrants inside Mark and Wendy's home, police discovered several pieces of evidence that linked him to the crimes, a pair of white Nikes and a black ski mask spattered with blood droplets, as well as a small plastic baggie containing women's jewelry. One of the rings inside the baggie belonged to Tina Washington. The schoolteacher had been murdered behind a restaurant eight months prior. Its inscription read, We love mum. Later that day, Mark was arrested when he arrived home from work. Inside his pocket, they found a baggie of cocaine and a cell phone. The cell phone would be linked to Sophia Nunez, one of the victims that Mark had not tend to target at random. He had met her at a bar shortly before her death, got on her cell number, and called her several times, attempting to meet for casual sex. When she stopped taking his calls, he killed her. Mark was taken downtown, booked, and charged with the baseline murders, and the police expected to be thanked for their hard work. However, to their surprise, they instead received an unexpected influx of support from Mark's friends and neighbors. According to them, Mark had never shown any indication that he was the murderer. He and his neighbors had barbecued together, and Wendy and Mark were often seen hiking and riding bicycles together for exercise. So he must be innocent. They said he was a kind and charming man, and even though they knew he had been to prison and what he had pled guilty to, they didn't hold it against him. They, like Wendy, believed that he had simply taken the plea in 1990 to serve less time than he would have if his case had gone to trial. They took their concerns to the news station in his defense and claimed that the police were trying to pin everything on an innocent man because they were so desperate to find a suspect. Together, this group caused quite a PR mess for the department, but the investigators were eventually able to turn their support around and use it in their department's favor. They pointed out that it was Mark's charisma that allowed him to hide in plain sight for so long. Like Dale Hausner and Samuel Dieterman, Mark had a job and appeared normal 
He also knew how to put people at ease when approaching them, and when the DNA finally came back and proved without a doubt that he was the killer, his supporters slowly backed off. Yeah, you better. People are still be like, no, I don't believe it. It's like, it's DNA, yo. <laughs> it's a lock. A Mark's trial, which would not take place until 2011, he was charged with 74 total counts. They included deep breath. 30 counts of aggravated assault, 12 counts of armed robbery, 10 counts of kidnapping, 9 counts of first degree murder, 9 counts of sexual assault with a minor, 5 counts of sexual assault, 4 counts of attempted armed robbery, 3 counts of attempted sexual assault, 3 counts of sexual abuse, and 3 counts of indecent exposure. For those counting, that was a total of 71 felony charges, and of them, he was found guilty of 67, including all 9 first degree murders. Oh boy, you're getting the death penalty, aren't you? Seeing the Mark had been part of the worst crime sprees in Phoenix history, the judge was eager to throw the book at him. He sentenced Marcado to death nine times over. And then he added an additional 1,196 years in prison for the other convictions. He was then given another 438 years for the sexual assault of the girls at the beginning of our episode. His total sentence was 1,634 years, plus death nine times over. He's still awaiting his execution. Good lord, what a monster. And that's where we end today's video. Thank you so much for being here. If you enjoyed the episode, please do leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.